Good to be with you again. Thank you, brother, for the ministry. Appreciate it very much. Last night was particularly uh, a blessing to me as Christ was brought before us, which is always a good thing, isn't it, if we get a glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I appreciated that last night this morning as well. We're going to turn back now to the book of 2 Kings. In chapter 2, 2 Kings chapter 2, And I think the ladies from Silica are here. Is that right? Yes. We, we didn't get to acknowledge them earlier, so I just thought I'd do so now. Nice to see you. Second Kings chapter 2. It came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Jericho. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha, and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he answered, Yea, I know it, hold ye your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Tarry, I pray thee here, for the Lord hath sent me to Jordan. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And they too went on. And fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off, and they stood by Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. And it came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee, but if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel, and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. He took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. 
And when the sons of the prophets which were to view at Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. They came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. I'm going to turn back there if you'd like to keep your place. I want to read just a verse from John's Gospel. Chapter 16. Actually, let me read a few verses beginning at verse 16. John 16, 16. A little while and ye shall not see me. And again a little while and you shall see me. Because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? A little while and ye shall not see me. And again a little while and you shall see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he saith a little while? We cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him and said unto them, Do you inquire among yourselves of that I said a little while and you shall not see me? And again a little while and you shall see me. Verily, verily, I say unto you that you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice and you shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. We began last night, for my portion, looking at the ministry of Elijah, at least a bit of it there, probably one of the most prominent scenes that you have in the life of Elijah, what happened on Carmel between the false prophets and Elijah, sometimes called a contest sometimes called a challenge. It was a challenge to see evidence of who was indeed the true and the living God. Who was the Lord. And we remember, even though it was brief, as we just touched upon it a bit, that when Elijah repaired the altar of the Lord and took the twelve stones and put the sacrifice in order and saturated the hole with those barrels of water that the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the groves cried out their voices into the wind, none to hear, none to regard, none to answer. And Elijah simply prayed to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God answered by fire. And the beauty is seen again in the fact that not just that God answered by fire to give evidence of who the true and living God is, but that the fire fell not on that people at that stage who were in apostasy and rebellion against God, but the fire fell on the sacrifice. A public demonstration of the true and living God. Let's just think for just a moment about the historical facts just as they are and you feel perfectly free to allow your mind to fast forward and transpose these things into the key of the New Testament. It'll be hard not to do so simply as you trace the historical facts. There was a sacrifice on Mount Carmel 
a public demonstration of the fire that fell on the sacrifice, an evidence of who was the true God. The sacrifice as a whole, the whole of what had taken place, the evidence even, was rejected by the leaders of that nation. And yet, the heavens would open and the blessing of rain would come and the drought that had plagued that land would be ended as the heavens were open and that blessing came down from heaven in the form of water. We spell that in Florida, W-A-R-D-E-R. <laughs> water. <laughs> Elijah had fled, remember, and was in the cave, and he heard the still small voice which announced the sweeping judgment that was going to take place of how God would cause that judgment to fall on those people, those wicked leaders of that land. But there was an interval of grace. The judgment didn't fall immediately. It was many years in coming. And during that period of the long suffering of God, Elisha was commissioned to go forth and to continue while the judgment of God waited. And yet the judgment of God finally did fall. And that, of course, is a story in itself. Now, I'm not going to say that these things are types in particular. I don't have to use that terminology. Call them lovely pictures if you like. But to me, the parallels of New Testament truth are unmistakable. We know that the sacrifice that took place on Calvary's cross, there on Golgotha's hill, when God demonstrated His love to us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I want to tell you once again today, to all that are here, if there are any here who are not yet saved, if you don't know Christ as Savior, if you've maybe even heard or grown up around it, but you personally haven't come to that place where you've recognized yourself as the sinner that Christ died for, and come to the Lord Jesus on the basis of what He did there and received Him as your Savior by faith, how will you know? Lots of voices crying out there today. Lots of voices crying out into the wind. Lots of claims as to who the true God is. But the one great evidence, there's only one that gave His Son to die for you. That is the greatest evidence of who is indeed the true and the living God. And so in a public demonstration on Calvary's cross, the Lord Jesus died that death. He was made sin, a sin offering for us, Him who knew no sin. But the leaders rejected it. Peter says the stone which the builders rejected. And yet the heavens opened, didn't they? And that Pentecostal blessing that occurred, that came down from heaven, 
when the Spirit of God came to indwell all those who are Christ, the heavens opened. And even that blessing in that day was rejected. There has been a long interval of grace, hasn't there, in the long-suffering of God? And yet judgment fell upon the nation of Israel. It didn't fall on all of them. There was always a remnant. It didn't fall on them immediately. Blindness didn't happen like that. It was a gradual process. But eventually the nation as a whole was blinded. And the ministry that took place in those days began with a man ascending up into glory. And so we come now to the story of Elisha and the beginning of his ministry. It's interesting if you trace back the history, it was in 1 Kings chapter 19 actually that he didn't ask for the mantle and he got the mantle. Remember he was there and Elijah passed by and cast his mantle upon him. Here he asked for it and he got it. And when he got it, finally, he used it. But what is here is not just about Elijah. It's about this transition that occurred and how it was that Elisha's ministry began. And it began first with a journey. It's a journey of tremendous significance when we begin to think of the history that's represented in this journey. It came to pass in verse 1 when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Now I have asked many times about this passage because I confess to you that there are many, many things in the Word of God I do not understand. I'm not exactly sure about the order of the places as they are given here. I understand that some scholars would say there's even some discrepancy about some of the places. There are often places mentioned in the Bible by the same name, but are different places. You remember that even in the birth of the Lord, the specificity of Scripture in the place where he was to be born was not in this Bethlehem, but in that Bethlehem, Ephrata. But having said that, You'll notice these places that are mentioned, Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho, and Jordan. The only question in my mind that, that comes up is why the order is as it is, because it isn't the order that we have presented historically in Scripture. If you were going to get that order, you'd start with Bethel, which is found in Genesis. And then you'd come to Gilgal, and then, well, actually to Jordan, then to Gilgal, and then to Jericho. So now that maybe you're thoroughly confused, um, you, you maybe have some ideas about that, and perhaps during some of the break times, you can enlighten us, at least enlighten me, and help me to understand what the order is. But nevertheless, think about this journey that they took, and think about what memories would have been evoked in the mind of both of those men, but in particular with Elisha as they went to these places. What these places represented in the history 
of the nation of Israel. There was Gilgal first that is mentioned. They came to Gilgal. And you remember perhaps that when we read about Israel as they uh, entered into the land, it was there at Gilgal that the reproach of Egypt was rolled away. They renewed the covenant. The men were circumcised. It wasn't just that the circumcision that Mark that was made in the flesh rolled away the reproach of Egypt that may in that sense represent the flesh. The reproach of Egypt. The fact that God did get those people over the Jordan and into that land in spite of everything that had happened in all those years in the wilderness. You remember that the manna ceased. They began a new diet they were in a new land. It was a new experience in that sense after they'd gone through those waters of Jordan. And so what significance would have been evoked in their minds about the covenant and about uh, the experience at Gilgal and so on. And they then went from there to Bethel, the house of God. I know you already know this. It's good for the younger ones to know it if they don't know it, that one of the significant um, helps that we find in studying the Word of God is the law of first mention or the law of first reference because oftentimes in Scripture, the first time a thing is mentioned, we find a certain significance connected with it that helps us to understand uh, the terms and the ideas or concepts that are associated there. So you remember it was at Bethel that Jacob had that experience. The latter, the angels of God ascending and descending. And he made a declaration. It's the first time the term is found in Scripture. This is none other than the very house of God. This is the gate of heaven. First mention of the house of God there at Bethel. It was the place of God's self-revelation. So unique was it that the Lord Jesus would use it to identify even Himself. The angels of God ascending and descending, not now upon a, a person of Jacob or a piece of land, but the Son of Man Himself. Because He is the center, isn't He? Of the government of God, which was represented as the gate of heaven and the house of God. He is the one in whom all of God's governmental dealings center. And think of the great promises that were there given to Jacob of the land, of his descendants, and ultimately of how Jacob would be disciplined, but restored finally and brought back into that place. And so the significance again of Bethel, the house of God. And what could be said about Jericho? how the Israelites came up against that obstacle. It's interesting as you study the book of Joshua, those obstacles that they faced. And the first obstacles that they faced were all obstacles that were overcome, not by the efforts of their military might, but by the mighty, miraculous power of God. And the obstacle of the walled cities 
of Jericho and how would those walls come down? I've always said, I don't mean it in any demeaning kind of way, but thinking about Moses a little bit, you know, when Joshua uh, stepped up, so to speak, and began to be the general who was under the commander-in-chief of the armies of Israel, and that was a lesson he had to learn. But can we say it like this, in a sense, respectfully, that Moses certainly would have been a tough act to follow. And so how'd you like to gather your troops and tell your troops, okay, we're going to come up against the city of Jericho. It's a walled city. It's a gated city. And um, so the troops would inquire, well, what's the battle plan? <laughs> well, here's what, it's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to march around the city and we're going to blow on our little trumpets. <laughs> and then on the final day, we're going to march around it more than one time. And then finally, we're all going to yell and shout. And you could just imagine the troops saying, and? <laughs> no, there's no and. <laughs> because we're going to have to learn the lesson, although Joshua wouldn't have said this, it's certainly taught, isn't it? That the way into that inheritance that God has for us is not by our efforts. God will have to bring us in. That's the way we'll have to get in. God will show us. It's the very essential gospel that we believe. It won't be by human efforts. It won't be our, by our power or military might or strength or numbers. God will have to do it. He brought the walls of that city down. And how that would have evoked the memories of all that took place there at Jericho. And of course, the Jordan. As they came to the Jordan, Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters and they were divided and held back like a wall and they went over on dry ground just like Israel had done with one major difference. This was Elijah taking his cloak or his mantle and striking the river and yet the picture was clear. How was it that Israel came over into that land which was to be their inheritance? It wasn't by Moses, was it? Because Moses, the law, the weakness of the flesh, couldn't do it. But Joshua did bring them in. And yet, when they had to cross that first barrier, that obstacle, you remember the priests were to take the Ark of the Covenant. And when their feet dipped in the brim of the Jordan River, the waters were held back like a wall. And the people went over safely. They passed through that scene, which to them would have been death. Those waters would have spelled death. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth went down into the place of death to make a way for them to cross safely in to come into their inheritance. It was so significant that they took stones. They placed them in the bed of the river. And they took stones and placed them on the bank of the river. And in a language that was almost identical to Passover, when your children come to ask you, when they see those stones, you remind them how it was that you came over into your inheritance. That the ark, the Lord of all the earth, went down into the place of death to bring you over safely into that inheritance. It's sheer speculation on my part. And I confess that. But I often wonder when the Lord Jesus 
stood in that Jordan River? Would it have been anywhere near those stones where the ark entered in? I often wonder. At least it was a striking picture. John himself inasmuch said, why are you there? Why was he there, Son of God, Lord of glory? Why was he standing in that place? Because one day he'd take another place. He'd take that place of death in order to bring us over and bring us through all the way to glory. And so the memories of what these places would have evoked. But there was something else. If you were with us last night, I mentioned that one of the unique features of First and Second Kings is that the prophets that dominate this section of the Word of God, Elijah and Elisha, are two prophets that ministered to the northern kingdoms. As far as the scripture record is concerned, they never visited the south. They never visited Judah. They never visited the house of God, the house of the Lord that stood there in that day. Which is an interesting thing. You see, whenever you find a prophet appearing on the scene, it wasn't an indication that things were going well. <laughs> things were not going well. That's why God raised up prophets as mouthpieces. And things were so bad that the greatest ministry of two prophets that we have recorded in that sense happened to the north. And is that not also a testimony of the grace of God who would give a witness there, a witness even in that day of His power and His ability to save? to deliver, to change. They were very dark times. It was a very dark part of the country. And the things that took place are almost indescribable under some of those kings of the north. And yet God raised up those prophets. So think of this. What was it when they came to these places? Gilgal. Bethel and Jericho. And they find there the sons of the prophets. And we find as Elijah is caught up that it, it says that there were sons of the prophets who there met him. Fifty sons of the prophets. Why were there so many prophets there? History tells us, and we have to rely on that a bit, that these places that had such significance in the history of the nation of Israel had become centers of idolatry. And God in those places raised up prophets. And I believe that the necessity of this journey for Elisha was at least part in this, that as he traveled with Elijah to each of those places, in a sense, he, he, he began to feel what was going on in those places. He began to sense what they had become. And it seems to me that that is at least in part behind his question that as he took this journey, he, he certainly would have felt the need. 
And as he stuck with Elijah, and Elijah says to him, Ask what I will do for thee before I be taken up. And Elisha says, It's going to take a double portion of that spirit that's in you if I'm ever going to get the job done. A double portion. It does make me think sometimes, what would I ask for? If the Lord were to say to me, ask of me what you'd have me do for you, wonder what I would answer. I will say this, there's no question but we're living in challenging times. Not only in our country, but in other places in the world. Difficult times. Changing times. I know people have been saying that for a long, long time. Sometimes it's a little amusing. You know, you, you travel around and folks like to ask you questions because they sometimes feel that because you go to different places, you sort of uh, have at least observed things. And so they will ask you questions. And one of the common questions I get is, what is the need of the church today? <laughs> I can tell you this, there's no one size fits all. You look at those churches in the book of the Revelation, and the Lord just didn't say, here's something that all of you do. Because there were different strengths and different weaknesses and so on. One question that I read, and I read it from time to time just to remind myself, how can we keep our young people? Now that question is found in a copy of a bound volumes of The Witness. I think the date was 1933. And I have those at home. They used to have a question and answer section in there. You'd write in and the next month they'd answer the question. And so they were asking in 1933, how can we keep our young people? <laughs> Challenging times. But do you ever feel it? Do you ever look around and get a sense of the enormity of the task that is before us? Of what we face in society? It's a different world, isn't it? Listen, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. Most of you know that. I was raised in at least a little part of the Bible Belt there in North Florida. Maybe it was just the tip of the buckle or something, but I mean, it was, you know, still enough to be part of the Bible Belt. North Florida, after all, is more like South Georgia, you know, than it is South Florida, which is a whole different world. And though I wasn't raised in a Christian home and didn't have parents who were believers, I knew a few things, at least basic Bible stories. Listen, 25 years ago, we had a Bible study in a storefront that we rented in the town of St. Augustine, Florida. And so we were moving some books in and some other things, and a young boy came to me, come, came down the alley, and he said, what are you doing there? And I said, well, we're, we're going to have a book room here, and we're going to have uh, Bible studies here. And What's your name? Jonathan. How old are you? Eleven riding his bike. Jonathan, I said, that's 
You know, that's, that's a Bible name. Really? You never heard of Jonathan? No. You know, Jonathan was a friend of David. Certainly you heard of David. No. Never heard of David. I said, sure. You know, David killed the giant. No, I heard Mickey Mouse killed a giant, you know, but <laughs> never heard of David, you know. <laughs> it was 25 years ago. Where are we today? You get out on the streets a little bit. You listen a little bit to what people are saying, what they're thinking. The enormity of the task that's before us. It's the Lord's work. Whether it be in the Gospel, whether it's ministry to God's people, trying to help them, strengthen them, enable them, challenge them, whatever it may be. The sheer enormity of the task. How will we ever accomplish anything with what we face? May we take some encouragement from what we find here. When Elisha said, a double portion of your spirit. He said, Elijah did. You've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken up from you, it shall be so. But if not, it shall not be so. Came to pass as they still went on and talked, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire, horses of fire, parted them both asunder, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel, the horsemen thereof, and he saw him no more. He took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. He took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him. Catch the scene in your mind now. And let your mind paint the picture as the Scripture does. Here was Elisha, a man on earth. He's going to now, having already been called by Elijah, if you will, back in 1 Kings chapter 19. But his ministry does not begin there. The passing of the mantle to Elisha. How was it done? It wasn't that Elijah stood there, was it, and said, I now bequeath upon thee the mantle of Elijah. You will now continue in the school of the prophets. No. He saw a man caught up into glory and received up into glory. His ministry began with a man taken up and an opened heaven. And then something coming down from that man in heaven that linked the man on earth with the man in the glory. That mantle. How significant it was. It fell from heaven. And now he ministered on earth linked with something from the man in the glory. That's how his ministry began. What a beautiful thing. A ministry that began with an ascended man and an open heaven. And he goes forth now to witness on planet earth of the power that could take a man righteously up into heaven. 
in spite of sin and death and enemies and so on. It was the continued ministry of the man in glory. And what is it for us? Has anything been sent down from heaven to link us with that man in the glory? Is it not in that section of John's Gospel where they talked about seeing Him and not seeing Him anymore? That the Lord would tell them, I will send the Spirit of God. He'll be in you. He will convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on Me. Of righteousness because I go to My Father and you see Me no more. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. He'll convince them. Listen, fellow believer in Christ, ultimately, it's not your job to convince anybody. Not in that sense. What a relief! <laughs> the pressure's off. All I have to do is speak the Word. <laughs> Preach Christ. And the Spirit of God will do the job. It's amazing how He does that sometimes, isn't it? I used to work with a man a little bit in Christian radio who's a unique North Florida character. And um, he used to preach in little dirt floor huts and shacks all around North Florida as a young man back in the sticks. And One night they were having gospel meetings and everybody told him, listen, there's rumor that tonight the town drunk is coming. And sure enough, he came. And my friend, the preacher, saw him sitting there in the back and he let him have it with both barrels. <laughs> he didn't pull any punches. And whether he knew or not, everybody knew who he was preaching at. He preached sin and hell and judgment. The whole wagon got unloaded at that fellow. And at the end, he gave an invitation. <laughs> And the preacher's 12-year-old daughter came forward and got saved. <laughs> Isn't it beautiful? Here he was unloading on that guy and the Spirit of God restored. Boop! <laughs> That's why you preach the Gospel. You just never know in that sense, do you? Who might be listening? And whom the Spirit of God might be dealing with? And oh, what a relief it is to know it's really not us in that sense. We are continuing the ministry of the One we are united with in the glory. The Lord Jesus, you see. So as we think about the enormity of the task and the difficulty that's before us, we go forth. We go forth with the message of life unto life. And we go forward with the message of death unto death. It's interesting, isn't it, to think about the miracles that took place when Elisha began to use the mantle. You read in verse 19 that the men of the city had come unto him and said, we, the situation is, the city is pleasant, but the water is not, and the ground barren. Perhaps there was something there that caused miscarriage. He said, bring me a new cruise and put salt in it. And they brought it to him, and he went forth, and he cast it into the, into the spring, and said, Thus saith the Lord, I've healed these waters. The waters were healed, and they brought forth life. The ministry of life unto life. 
And then he went up from Bethel in verse 23 and was going up by the way and there came forth little children out of the city. Now, two things about this passage. Number one, little children could have been young folks. They weren't infants. And they mocked him and said, Go up, thou bald head. Go up, thou bald head. Which almost seems like they could have been thinking of Elijah. But you see, to mock the prophet... Because the prophet was the mouthpiece of God. It was, in a sense, mocking God's word, God's truth. And ultimately, if you do that, it'll bring judgment. He turned and looked back on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood and tore forty and two children of them. Let's be clear what it doesn't say doesn't say the bears killed them. Certainly didn't do them any good. <laughs> but on the one was a message of life. To the other, a message of judgment. And so it is with the gospel, isn't it? Sometimes when we preach the gospel, sometimes when we witness to folks, it's easy for us to think nothing happened. Yes, it did. As I trace through John's gospel in my mind, there are there are always what I call the four R's in John's Gospel. There's always a revelation. With that revelation, there is a response. And that response is either reception or rejection. And it's that way every time you present the Gospel, you witness to somebody. There's a revelation. There's a response. And it's either reception or rejection. So don't think nothing happened in the purposes of God. Yes, it did. What a wondrous thing to think that as we, as believers in Christ in this world, minister and serve, it is the continued ministry of the man and the glory. These things began Jesus both to do and teach, but they didn't end there, did they? We continue it. Father, we thank you for these beautiful pictures given to us that speak of even higher things. We take them even at the level that they were taken at that day, what wondrous things they were. And that double portion, how it can be traced even in the ministry of Elisha, who we have recorded double the miracles that Elijah performed. But beyond that, we see bigger pictures. We cannot help but sense that these are given to us that we might have a sense of what we are involved in even today. Of the church beginning with an open heaven and a man received into glory. And the power that can place someone there righteously in spite of sin and death and all the rest. May the Spirit of God take the truth of God and make it real to our hearts May He reveal Christ to us and make Him real and rich, we pray. And Lord, now we want to give You thanks for this food. We thank You for those who've labored behind the scenes and who've done so much to provide for us something as wonderful as being able to eat. We don't take it for granted. May we even eat and drink to the glory of God. Thank You for this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.